Good evening, everybody, and thank you for coming to our conversation with Micha tonight. Uh, this is actually Micha's ninth visit at Temple Emmanuel. So, first of all, we just want to thank Micha. <laughs> want to thank Micha for his friendship and his Torah. And I want to begin, uh, Micha, with the very evocative title yeah. of this evening's talk, which is, Is God a Threat to Religion? Very evocative, very provocative. So could you tell us what you meant by that, what you were going for, and how the tension in that title reflected itself in Maimonides' life and work? First, it's my ninth time here. Ninth time. And you still, you're not sick of me? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me back. It's great to be here. I always say this is... What? There we go. Okay. Now I'm Madonna? Now you're now Madonna. Madonna. Great, great. Religion, as William James put it, it's human attempt to communicate with what's not human. It is our attempt to build a relationship with the mystery, with what's beyond us. Therefore, religion is an attempt to build a relationship with God and how in what sense can religion, can God be a threat to religion? And how can religion challenge God? Well, let me try to think about this. And to think about this, first I want to think about the history of God. When I say the history of God, I mean the history of the idea of God and how the Maimonidian idea fits in here. In biblical times, as Yechezkel Koifman, one of the most important historians of the biblical philosophy, the way he puts it, in the biblical times, everyone used to believe that gods were a part of nature and the great principles that governed nature governed the gods too. And those religions were religions where people communicated directly with nature. They tried to communicate with the wind with the sun, with the ocean, with the ground, with the animals. Everything was animated. Gods were everywhere. And he was in communication with nature. Then monotheism comes around. And what monotheism does, it separates God from nature. God is now beyond nature. God is not governed by the principles of nature. God governs nature. That was the biblical revolution. As Koifman puts it, this is a pun that works in Hebrew. He said, monotheism, monotheism is, I guess, not Hebrew. Right. Yeah? <laughs> monotheism is not to believe that God is one. It's to believe that God is unique. It's beyond us. It's beyond nature. Maimonides comes around many years later and takes the, the monotheistic revolution very seriously. If God is beyond, if God is not a part of this world, so his conclusion is that God can't be captured by language. Why is that? That's because what language does, it puts God and world in the same category. Let me explain this for a minute. We use language to describe the world. And when we use the language that we use to describe the world in order to describe God, then we're squeezing God 
into this world. I'll give you an example, Rabbi. Um, Pope Francis is a good person, right? Love Pope Francis. That's right. He's a good person. I have an aunt in New York, my Aunt Janet. She's a good person. The Baal Shem Tov? Good. He was a good person. God? Real good. Real good. <laughs> Super good. Super good. So what, we, what did we just do, me and the rabbi? God is in the same category of my Aunt Janet. And Pope Francis and Baal Shem Tov and my wife. <laughs> and the same, no, but, but Rabbi say, no, but he's super good. He's way beyond that. That's right, but all you're saying is that he is more of the same thing. He's in the same category of us. So can I just stop you here? Here we are. Here's one of the things we do in this space is we say that God is good, super good. We say, Ha'el, Ha'gadol, Ha'gibor, Ha'hanara. God is great and strong and awesome. And we say it three times a day, unless it's Shabbos, in which case we say it four times a day. So Maimonides says no words, but we're all about words. Inside every pew is a book of words called a Siddur that we use. Pew, Ovi, Right, so what does... What does Maimonides, does he daven shacharit? So there's, first of all, he does daven shacharit, but he believes that that's not praising God. Because to say that, to complete the biblical revolution of separating God from world, you have to separate God from language. And as a result, God is beyond words. And as a result, what Maimonides does, he silences our prayers. So you ask, okay, but we pray. First of all, you see why God is a threat to religion? Because if I take God seriously, if I see God as a total mystery beyond language, so your religious activity doesn't work anymore. It gives you an excuse not to go to shul. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You see, there there is a Hebrew word here that, that, that is very important to this conversation. And the most important word when it comes to religion in biblical Hebrew, is kadosh. Kadosh. I think it's translated holy or sacred. What is kadosh? Kadosh. So in, I think the only way to understand the word is to listen to how it's used in the Bible. So in Exodus, it says, God tells Moses to tell the people not to get close to Mount Sinai, not to touch Mount Sinai, and this is how he says it. Hagbel etahar vekidashto. Keep them away from the mountain and make it holy. Meaning Mount Sinai is holy when it's untouchable. The holiest square yard in space is the Kodesh Kodashim. The holy of holies. And that's a square yard that we're not allowed to enter. Never. Besides one person in one day. The holiest name in the Hebrew word, sorry, in the Hebrew language is God's personal name. It's, an, it's a word of four letters. And that's the word, halachically, we're never allowed to pronounce. Let's put this together. The holy mountain is the untouchable mountain. The holy square yard is the one you can't enter 
The holy word is the one you can't pronounce. Holy, kadosh, means what's beyond you, what's the untouchable, the unthinkable. Biblical revolution is to make God kadosh. He's beyond nature. So My Menidian revolution takes God one step further and, compl- and makes is beyond language. So, Mich, I want to ask now if this is a helpful thing for humans. Um, and I'm going to ask Brian to show a couple of... Uh, we prepared some uh, photographs. So if you'll turn around, Micha. This is uh, some photographs of people after the German wings um, tragedy. These are family members of people who died from the suicidal pilot. Keep going, Brian. This is more grief of real human beings. Okay, that was German wings. And now I asked Brian to come up some pictures of Nepal. This mm-hmm. was the um, picture that was in the Times last week of uh, grief of people who lost loved ones in Nepal. Keep going. Okay. And then um, now I want to bring in Rambam, Maimonides. And this is from your book. Okay. So I'm going to read it uh, and then ask you to explain. Uh, the perfect static God of the guide must it would appear be entirely indifferent to things that happen in the world. Maimonides describes the unchanging nature of God, faced with the absolute destruction of the world that took place at the time of the flood. Now, quoting Maimonides, it also says, The Lord sitteth at the flood. It means that when the state of the earth is changed and corrupted, There is no change in the relation of God. May he be exalted to things. This relation remains the same, stable and permanent, whether the thing undergoes generation or corruption. In other words, literally, people could be drowning to death, and God is on the throne, untouched, unruffled, doesn't come down. So could you say, like, what is he saying, and is that helpful? Anything I'll say now won't be helpful. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. When terrible things happen to good people, so everything has a tendency, all our belief system has a tendency to collapse. Now, Maimonides are that, besides a Maimonidian concept of God, meaning these events happen and they challenge regular theology. But Maimonidian theology is immune to this critique. Because? Because it's not that he said, Rambam doesn't promise us a world where if we behave nicely, we'll have nice lives. Rambam doesn't promise us a world where there is a symmetry between the way our, eth- our ethics and our biography. There could be an asymmetry. I could live a good life, I could be a good person and not have a good life. And Rambam doesn't, says this Rambam's God doesn't promise you that symmetry. The God of religion promises you that symmetry. So these pictures Brian put up are pictures that, ch- that challenge religion, but they don't challenge the promise hidden within religion. But they don't challenge Rambam's God. And you ask, 
And here's the problem. It seems like, according to Jewish history, I mean, the history of God is a history of a God distancing himself more and more. In biblical times, God is not a part of nature. In Talmudic times, the most important Talmudic declaration, or one of the most Talmudic de- important Talmudic declarations, is that prophecy ended. Hafsakata nevuah. Meaning, if in the biblical times they believe that God is not a part of the world, but he communicates himself to the world through prophets, in the Talmudic times they believe he's not a part of the world and he doesn't even communicate with the world anymore. The Talmud silenced God. Maimonides comes around and takes this one step further. If the Talmud silenced God speaking to us, Maimonides silenced our ability to speak about God. And as a result, Rambam writes the following, is that the only way to praise God is through silence. Lecha dumiya tehila. He quotes the Hilim, Psalms, where it says the greatest praise for God is silence. So how did he understand praying? So Rambam discusses, has a... What was he doing in his own self-understanding? So he has an understanding. He, he builds, he has a theory that religion goes through evolution. Where in the ancient times, the way we expressed religious devotion was through sacrifice, through korbanot. And that was because that was the language people knew to express that. That was because, he writes this in volume 3, chapter 32, the, the, the Torah accommodates itself to human nature. So we used to have sacrifice. It was the right idea for the right time. But then we evolved from that to prayer. And in the future, we will evolve from prayer to silence, to a certain form of meditation. That's the evolution of religion. Meaning, just like today we pray and we think about people once slaughtering animals and they look primitive to us, in the future, when the shul will turn into an meditating room. Right. So we'll think of the time we used to pray and it will seem... So, no joke, the Quaker meeting house where people come together in silence, that sounds like Maimonides' more that sounds like a more prayer. That's right, a more Maimonidian. Because, and also the notion that... I would say there's a theological zero-sum game here. Where the... It took me time to understand this that the greatest threat to religion doesn't come from people that don't take God seriously. It comes from the people that take God too seriously. Most of my secular friends in Israel that are not religious, they believe in God. And it took me time to understand. It's not that they're not religious. Although they believe in God, they're not religious because they believe in God. God is too great to believe that I could change its mind by praying. Right. The Maimonidian God, the great God, is a God that you can't change, that you can't control, because he's greater than us. And what is religion about? It's about an attempt to change God's opinion, to control God. Therefore, if we take God seriously, religion collapses. Oh, and by the way, if I take religion seriously, and I feel that I'm controlling God, 
Well, in a very deep sense, that's not God anymore. To say that you change God, that is denying that that is God. By definition, a God that you can control is, according to my Menidian definition, not a God. By the way, I got in trouble for this in Israel. Right. Because I was... uh, There's a a TV show called um, Chotzei Israel, Crossing Israel. A very interesting, the most, I think, the greatest interviewer in Israel called Kobi Meidan. And he interviews different, I was interviewed about this book when it came out in 2010. And he's the type of interviewer that was like the the therapist type. (laughs) Sitting there, he's asking questions. And after four minutes, you forget that you're on TV. And you're like opening your heart to him. And like, yeah. It's like, oh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you're like, wow. And, and, <laughs> so after a while, so I, so I had this line that came out that if according to Maimonides, I could change God, that's denying God's existence. If I believe that what God is doing now, he is going to punish me if I get him angry. If, I, if that's, that's by definition not a God, because that's a God that you could describe. That's a God that you can imagine. Therefore, that's a God that's part of this world. Therefore, that's not the God of monotheism. Meaning that religion is the most ancient form of heresy. So I said that to Kobe Maidan. Religion is heresy. How did you feel about that? Great. So... He got that line. Now, the problem was that they had to sell this TV show. So for a week, there was ads, there was promotions. So guess what line was repeated again and again on TV? Hadat hikfira. Religion is heresy. I said that again. And for a while, I couldn't walk down the street without people saying to me, why did you say that religion is heresy? But you know what, Rabbi? In a very deep sense, it is. Meaning, if you think that, you, that through rituals, you could change God, well, that's not God. And, and therefore, if you take religion seriously, that this works, that's not taking God seriously. If you take God seriously, you can't think religion works. Now, this is a zero-sum game. And the, I think, Rabbi, that this is the perplexity that the book is about. The tension between God and religion. And I think the guide for the perplexed is not the people that are perplexed between Athens and Jerusalem, religion and science. It's about the tension between Rambam's God and Rambam's religion. And anyone that feels perplexed, that believes in an awesome God, at the same time wants to believe that religion means something, that person is perplexed, and for that person, Rambam wrote his book. By the way, I think he tries to guide you out of the perplexed. Therefore, if you want to guide yourselves out of this perplexity, so you should read Rambam's book. But if you don't think you could read Rambam's book, so maybe you could just read a different book that came out. (laughs) Micha? So... Talk to us about, just so we can put this Rambam in context, um, talk to us about 
what the Mishnah Torah is or the Yad Hazakah, uh-huh. because you've been talking about the God of Maimonides and the religion of Maimonides. Yeah. But talk to us about what he does as a codifier of Jewish law, what that is, what that project was, and how these two different projects, the Jewish law, the religion, the davening, pray Shachrit, pray Mincha, pray Marev, bench, beat your breast, etc., do all the religious stuff. How does that square with the God who cannot be tamed? Okay. This is very, you would expect that this unmovable God undermines religion. So you'd expect Rambam has nothing to do with halacha. There's only one problem. Rambam was the number one master of halacha. Rambam had two great achievements. The guide, which he wrote when he was in his 50s, and Mishnah Torah. Now, Mishnah Torah is 14 books that captures and articulates and creates um, order in Talmudic law. Now, anyone that ever tried to study Talmud noticed that it's chaos. The Talmud has a few characteristics. One, that there's disagreements, and two, that the conversation is so... It's chaos. It's like a dream. It's like nothing works there. It's chaos. And Rambam did two things. Instead of, instead of inter- taking the contradictions, the disagreements into his book, he erased the disagreements. And instead of the disagreements, he canonized only the conclusion. And where there's chaos, he created order. And as a result, if you want to really know Talmudic law, don't learn the Talmud. And some say that this was an important move, but a problematic move. Because one of the interesting, what's the power of the Talmud comes from its chaos, and furthermore, the power of the Talmud comes from the fact, the paradox, that this is a canonized text. It's a text with authority. But if there's anything that undermines authority, it's a disagreement. As opposed to the Roman law, here we have what our text of authority, its content challenges authority. That is the great tension that comes from the Talmud. Rambam erases that tension because he erases the disagreement that led to a conclusion and canonizes only the conclusion. So he was asked by a scholar called Rabbi Pinchas Adayan, why did you do that? And his answer was, well, I didn't want to people, people to know that there are disagreements when it comes to halacha because disagreements create doubt and I wanted to create halachic certainty. Now, why is this interesting? That Rambam was so dogmatic that he wanted to erase doubt. And therefore, he wanted to erase all the disagreements so he won't be exposed to them. That is because when he writes the guide for the perplex, when it comes to theological, when it comes to the big questions. So let's say the question of providence Rambam introduces providence the following way. He says, in the history of theology, there are five different approaches to providence. He'll share with you all of them. When it comes to prophecy, he says, there's three attitudes to prophecy. I'll share with you all of them. When it comes to creation, I won't, there's three attitudes, Aristotle, Plato's, and the one of religious people. I'll share with you all of them, and I'll give everyone the best argument. Which means when it comes to halacha, he hides the machloket, the disagreement, 
When it comes to philosophy, he exposes us to all the opinions, to the great disagreements. Why does he do that? Here's my reading, Rabbi. If he wrote that, if he thinks, if he wrote to Pinchas Adayan, that disagreement creates doubt, that's why he hid the disagreement from Mishnah Torah. So I want to take, learn from that answer and to try and to use that to understand why does he inject disagreement in the guide? Because when it comes to philosophy, he wants to create doubt. His double project, his halachic project and philosophical project is an attempt to, to create halachic certainty and philosophic doubt. Why is that? Because Rambam didn't like the Jewish intellectual project. What Jews are doing for generations is arguing about milchiks and fleshiks. <laughs> for generations, what we're arguing about, what do you do when the four... We're arguing halachic conversations and so much intellectual creativity is, is going to the halachic ongoing conversation. What Rambam is trying to achieve is to stop that conversation, but to end that conversation by erasing doubt, by reaching the conclusion and shifting the Jewish intellectual power to a new conversation, to big philosophical questions. That's what he tried to achieve. To achieve. And he probably failed. Because you know what Jews did to Mishnah Torah? The book is supposed to end the conversation. They offered Pirushim, interpretations, to Mishnah Torah. <laughs> and they added Mishnah Torah to the conversation. And there's so many arguments. What did Rambam mean in Mishnah Torah? Meaning he didn't manage to stop the Talmudic conversation. He became a part of the Talmudic conversation and the philosophical conversation where he wanted to shift the Jewish intellectual energy to, it didn't really move that direction unless we'll have a renaissance of Jewish philosophy in the 21st century. So, Micha, here's what I'm perplexed about in light of, of your lecture, which is uh, if Maimonides meant what he wrote when he wrote the guide, why would he care so much about halacha at all? Why would he spend 14 volumes on halacha at all if he feels that there's something somehow off about the religious project? Mm -hmm. I'm davening, I'm trying to control God, I'm beating my breast, I'm trying to control God, I'm keeping kosher, I'm trying to control God, I'm mm -hmm. doing Shabbos, I'm trying to control God, and I know that God can't be tamed, God is so other. So why does, so how do you put these two Maimonides together? Yeah. Rambam answers your question in 25 chapters in the guide. I only read through chapter 24. <laughs> so. so in volume 3, chapter 25, till volume 3, chapter 50, 25 chapters are about the meaning of mitzvot, the hidden meaning of mitzvot. And Rambam argues that every mitzvah has a purpose. And not only that every mitzvah has a purpose, it has a rational purpose that could be rationally exposed if we only try. By the way, he denies, in the Talmudic tradition, they differentiate between chukim and mishpatim. Mishpatim are the mitzvot that you can understand. Like, thou shalt not murder. Chukim are the mitzvot that you can't understand and just accept, like shatnez. Wool and linen mixtures. Okay, all these things that, okay, there's no reason, okay. Rambam says, no, this is how I read 
that Talmudic distinction. Mishpatim are mitzvot that are easy to understand. Chukim are mitzvot that you can understand, but it's a lot harder. That's how he understands it. And in 25 chapters, he tries to rationalize it. And one of his arguments is the following. Mitzvot do change the world. But they don't change the mitzvah, God, the commander. It changes the mitzvah, the human being, the one that's commanded. Meaning mitzvot, Rambam was an Aristotelian in, a, in, a, in, the, in the following sense. There was a disagreement among the great philosophers, let's say Socrates and Aristotle. How do you create virtue? How do you create a better personality? And Aristotle and Socrates thought that you do that by deepening your understanding of virtue. If we'll understand the, the depth, what virtue is, we'll become virtuous. By understanding what good is, you become good. Aristotle said, it doesn't work that way. Um, how do you say when there's someone who's a doctor of uh, lungs? Pulmonologist. How, how do you say? Pulmonologist. Pulmonologist. I have a friend in Israel who's a pulmonologist. He's one of the best. He really knows about lungs. He smokes two packs a day. <laughs> so Socrates can't explain him because he know. I guess he kind of knows he really knows the effect of smoking on your lungs. And I guess he preaches that and reads that while he smokes a red Marlboro. Right. So you ask, how is that possible? Socrates doesn't have an answer. It turns out you are not your thoughts. You could think something and not be that thing. Aristotle says, no, we are the sum of of our habits. That's what we are. We are created by our deeds. This is an important move by Aristotle because it's a key to Maimonides and to the mitzvot because we're used to thinking that tchunot, um, traits, our human Trait, traits, right. that our deeds are expressions of our traits. What we do expresses who we are. But Aristotle argues that what we do doesn't only express our personality, it also creates our personality. I mean, it's not only that traits create deeds, it's that deeds, it's reverse. Deeds create traits. And after practice, when you do something again and again, if you're not a generous person and you start giving, eventually giving will become easy. And when it's easy, that means that when you give, you're not overcoming yourself anymore. You're expressing yourself. That means that the act of giving doesn't only express our generosity, it also turns us into more generous people. So Rambam completely buys into the Aristotelian idea that actions are not only created by us, they also create who we are. And in 25 chapters, he tries to argue and to explain how the mitzvot turn us into athletes. I mean, our persona- it perfects our personality. Right. So, Micha, in the conservative movement in America today, let's say at Temple Emanuel, one of our qualities as, as a tribe of the Jewish people is we don't do mitzvot unless they speak to us. We have to understand, we have to make the case, the mitzvah has to make the case, I'll be a better person because of it. Yes. And if I don't see that case, I won't do it. Yeah. I'm autonomous. 
the choosing self. So in that sense, is Maimonides kind of a proto-conservative Jew? Uh, he's really saying mitzvot, you do them when they shape you. And when you see that you're a better character, your character is better. And is it the flip, the negative inference, the flip is, and if they don't, then I don't do it. And I don't have to do it. Because it sounds like Maimonides rejects the idea of God as commander. Let, let's, talk about, let's talk about salmon versus lobster. Right? So if, if I believe that God commands me to only eat fish that has fins and scale, so now I'm at legal's and I really want the lobster, but I know the Torah says fins and scales, and I believe God gave the Torah, and I believe God commanded me. And when the mitzvah said, when our formula says, I share kiddushan who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us, I believe that. Uh, there's, a, there's a name for Jews like that. They're called Orthodox. And so I'm not going to eat the lobster because God commanded me. But if you don't, and most of us don't believe that, Right? So I'll only do this mitzvah if I believe it's going to make me a better person. I don't frankly see how eating lobster makes me a worse person. I don't see how eating salmon makes me a better person. Right? Um, so if it's a character-based rationale, mm -hmm. which is how most of us live, to be honest with you, um, number one is Maimonides kind of a proto-conservative Jew. And number two, if he were here, what would he say to us? The law is also about training your mind to understand that the world is not about you. It's not like the gigantic resource that's there to satisfy you, satisfy your needs. I think there's a song of You Too where they say, When I was three, I, when I was three, I thought the world revolved around me. Yeah? This You Too? Well, maybe I'm just making up a song. It's a new yeah. song. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you can't have your cake and eat it too, Mr. Maimonides. It's either God no. gave us the Torah okay, no. and I got to do it, or he's way up there kind of disconnected from us, and I'm going to do so, what makes me a good character, and frankly, okay, lobster so, doesn't detract from that. So if um, Maimonides believed that the world, that what people do, is that they believe that the world all, not when you're three, you think the world evolves around you. But your entire life, you think you, the world evolves around you. And part of what halacha trains you to understand is that it's not about you, but classic religious tradition does train you to think it's about you. Let me try to just explain this point. There's something about his entire philosophy that Judaism is there to crack the illusion of ego centric. Egocentriut. Egocentricism. Yeah. All about me. It's all, I'm, the, world's, the world is around me. And let's try, Ram, I'll give you an example. Rambam didn't like astrology at all. Because what is ast the way he understood astrology? And I don't want to offend to anyone that is into astrology. It's Rambam, it's not me. <laughs> and that, what is the, like um, Mars and Venus... They're about us now. Their relationship will influence us. It's all about us. You know, there's a strong connection between being paranoid and being megalomanic. Strong connection. You know the definition of being paranoid is? That when you're sitting in the bleachers in a football game and the players are, how do you say? Huddling. They're huddling. 
and they're planning their move, and you're the bleachers, and you think they're speaking about you. <laughs> is that being paranoid? Or is that being megalomanic? Because astrology is what the world is now doing, Venus and Mars. It's about me. Now, realizing that it's not about you. Now, so when you, t- so when you take the egocentric impulse, turn it into science, what you get is astrology. Now, Rabbi, when you take the egocentric impulse and turn it into religion, what you get is hashgacha pratit. Is that is um, personal providence. Is that right. what, what is God doing now? Right. He's thinking about us. Now, overcoming that, understanding the greatness of God is also understanding how not important we are. Halacha is supposed to train us to understand that it's not about us. Rambam thought that creates a healthier psychology and also a healthier politics, by exactly. the way. Exactly. In other words, God does not care what I eat. And therefore, if God does not care what I eat, if God does not care what I eat, the stars don't care what I eat, the football team doesn't care what I eat, then I can eat what I want as long as I'm not hurting somebody. That's right. But imagine this. I had... Um, but what you just said no, I, I, is I, an I, argument against Kashrut. So I'm wanting to know. No, if I'm I, I, yesterday I had a. Uh, I, it's also not, by the way, it's an argument I, against I had Shabbat. a conversation with the leader of the reform movement yesterday, Rick Jacobs. Rick Jacobs. And he said, why well, he keeps Kashrut. And he said, and he's not a conservative Jew, he's a reformed Jew. And he said, he's actually the reformed Jew, right? He's like the, he's the guy, right? And he said that it reminds me that the world is not mine. That it's not like I can't eat everything I see. It's about practicing self-restraint. So reminding me that the world is not my resource. It's not so, mine. It's not, not everything is accessible to me. So in the Maimonidean system, again, if, if I believe God is the commander, then the arbiter of all this is God. God gave me kashri, what I was supposed to keep it. In the Maimonidean system, of character and traits, that good, good deeds build good character. Who gets to be the judge? Do I get to judge? If, if, for a good Maimonidean, am I free to say, I'm, I'm the judge of whether this mitzvah mm-hmm. will mold my character? Mm-hmm. No. And, so I would say there's two elements here. First of all, the mitzvot are divine. But what makes them divine is two things. Here, it's a little bit complicated. I don't want to get into the muck, but... Okay. But... The, mitz- the nature is divine, right? Moses looked at nature, internalized the, in- the principles of nature, right. and he turned them into the laws of the Torah, which means that the laws of the Torah are a reflection of the wisdom of nature. And since the wisdom of nature is divine wisdom, as a result, the Torah is divine. Was that too complicated? Well, last question okay, on so, this. Okay. Hold on a second. If Maimonides were alive today, yeah. the Maimonides who authored the guide, yeah. would it be an Orthodox, conservative, reform, or reconstructionist <laughs> Jew? No joke. That's a serious question. The Maimon- not the Halacha, Mishnah Torah Maimonides, but the guide, the book that you wrote about, that guy, would he be at our shul? Would he be the Reform Synagogue down the street, or would it be at Shari Tefila, the Orthodox Synagogue? Actually, I think that the guide of Mishnah Torah is the same, is the Rambam of Mishnah Torah is the same Rambam of the guy of the perplexity and the introduction to Mishnah Torah, I think he might give us an answer. The introduction to Mishnah Torah, he asks, why do we have to obey the Talmud? 
and not, let's say, the rabbis that came after the Talmud. They have no authority. We have to obey the Talmud. And he denies a very important notion in the history of Allah. Of, it's called Hitma'atut There is this belief that throughout history we're regressing. Which means in the time of the Talmud they were, they were giants and as we move on in time we are smaller and smaller which creates, you know, like a glorification of their time. We can't understand what they understood. We can't ever know what they know. And as a result, we only have to surrender to what they said. He completely doesn't accept that. And he says, the reason why we have to accept and surrender to the Talmud is not because they were giants, but because the Talmud was accepted among the Jewish people. Therefore, when I obey the Talmud, I'm not obeying the Talmud. I'm obeying the Jewish people that accepted the Talmud. The authority is the Jewish people. So maybe that answers your question. In the sense that by, obey, by connecting myself to halacha, I am connecting myself to the club that throughout the generations was devoted to halacha, but that's the club that has the authority to adjust the halacha. Is that orthodoxy? Is that conserved? Is that reconstruct? Well, that's a bigger question. Okay. Micha, one of the beautiful points in your book that really spoke to many of us as we've been studying it, um, but perhaps not everybody has, is Maimonides' statement, as you brought it out, that the stories in the Torah didn't happen that way, Mm -hmm. the the parable, and that they're actually more powerful for that. So could you kind of share that, that the stories didn't happen that way, uh, and then talk about, therefore, what would he do with the Exodus story uh, and the ten plagues, and therefore, what would he do with the revelation at Sinai? Ever since the 19th century, the whole relationship between truth and history got us all confused. We started thinking that for something to be true, it had to, be, it had to historically happen. Let's say I tell you a joke now, okay? A Frenchman, an Israeli, and an American are on an airplane, and there's only one... I'm just making this up, okay? And then in the end of the joke, everyone starts laughing their hearts out. You know the people that when they laugh, they can't control themselves, they start hitting the floor as a result? Imagine that happens. And then in the end, you'll ask me, Micha had a question. Did that really happen? Was there really an airplane with a Frenchman, Israeli, and American, and there was only one parachute? Did that really happen? Let's say I tell Rebbe, I don't know, maybe it didn't. So he'd say, oh, that's a, so it's not a real joke. <laughs> How do you measure a real joke? If it was real? How do you measure a real joke? If it made people laugh. How do you measure the Torah? Rashi asks us to measure the Torah the following way. Rashi. Rashi, the first Rashi in the Torah, Rashi says, the Torah was supposed to begin with the first mitzvah because the purpose of the Torah is not to describe the world for us, but to instruct us how to behave in this world and how to create this world. That's, so he says, well, so it, it describes the structure of the world, not so we'll know science, not so we'll know history, 
Is there because something in those stories guides us how to behave and repair this world? The Torah is not about, doesn't offer us a description of reality. It's an attempt to turn us into people that can change reality. The story of Exodus, by the way, is a great example. Um, Michael Walzer wrote this great book, Exodus and Revolution, where he shows that many, many revolutions in modern times were inspired by the story of Exodus, including the, the story of the United States of America. When, some of, when the founders got on a boat, crossed the ocean, they thought that the British king was Pharaoh. That's what they called him. He was Pharaoh. The ocean is the Red Sea. America is Canaan. What are they saying to themselves? They are not analyzing Exodus. They are not interpreting Exodus. They were living Exodus. Later on, when Martin Luther King will march, he will say, well, now we are the Hebrews. Everything turns around. The founders, the descendants of the founders that they thought they were the Hebrews, well, now they are Pharaoh. And now, what was he? And we're saying, let my people go. He wasn't analyzing that story. What was he doing? He was living that story. We say in Nela Seder, Chayav Adam Bechol Dor Vador. Chayav Adam Lirod Datsmo Kilu Hu Yatsayim Itzrayim. Every generation, a person has to see himself as if he comes, came out of Egypt. I think that was a commandment that was observed by many, many nations. They all see themselves as. So I have a question what happens if someone will discover that Exodus didn't happen? We don't have no archaeological evidence that it happened. Well, it's still a true story. You know why? It's not, a, it's not a true story. I don't know if it reflects history. I do know that it creates history. I don't know. The, what is the relationship between a story and reality? So the way we start thinking about this in a wrong way, the 19th century, the relationship is the following. A story has to describe reality. When it comes to Exodus, reality seems always to describe the story. Meaning, or to imitate the story. To be a, it, like, um, there's an Israeli thinker that noticed that, um, you know a TV show called Seinfeld? <laughs> it's an Israeli TV show. I was, was asking, wondering <laughs> if it arrived here too. <laughs> Just wondering. So you, there was a time, every time there was like a comic moment, someone would say, hey, that's like Seinfeld. And you notice how interesting that is because Aristotle wrote that art is a representation of reality. But now it seems like it's reversed because even there's a funny moment, you see, that's like Seinfeld. That's not that art represents reality. Now it seems like reality reminds us of art. I would say that's the dynamic of Exodus. So Rambam comes along and says... um, he says that the, the stories of the Bible should be treated as a parable and not as history for the following reason. If it's history, it's not interesting. If it's history, so it's about them. If it's a parable, it's about us. If it's history, it's about something that happened. If it's a parable, it's about something that happens. 
meaning by turning it from history to a parable, it's not less true, it's more real. And in that sense, and here's the thing, Rambam didn't write this as an apology against some Israeli archaeologists that are trying to prove that didn't happen. He didn't write it as a reaction to them. He wrote it as an expression of his internal truth and the fact that a book wasn't reacting to a critique offers this answer, makes it even a more viable and interesting answer to that critique. Micha, how was the book received in its own time and context? And I know that there's something about Maimonidean controversies and the burning yeah. of books, etc. In, in what way, how was it his guide received and what was it about him and his thoughts and his ideas that stirred controversy? Well, isn't it kind of clear? <laughs> Did people get that? Did people read it? I mean, we, it took you to explain it to us. So did people get it at the time? Well, Who understands these I would say he did, the first thing that he did, he admits that his sources are not Jewish sources. So the monopoly of Jewish tradition on our intellect is cracked in the opening of the guide. And is he the first Jewish thinker to do that? No, but he's very loud about it. Loud in volume 2, chapter 25, he says that he, he would have, if he would have, was um, persuaded by Aristotle's argument that the world wasn't created, it's eternal, never created, he says the following, and it's a clear statement. He said, I have no problem to believe that the world wasn't created, that the world is eternal, because I have to be devoted to my intellect. And then he says, but it says first verse in Genesis that the world was created he said and then he says I'd have no problem to interpret that verse as a parable as a parable so he now Jews always interpret the Bible the way they want but he was the first to admit it wow so that was controversial non-Jewish sources what else made his work that work and other work controversial well the notion that God is unchangeable, therefore we can't change God, empties religion from its significance. And people got that? That was very threatening. The scholars got that, they shared the news, and then they started burning his books. By the way, not only Mishnah Torah, also the, the, the first book of, not only the guide, also the first book of Mishnah Torah was added to the fire. They needed more paper, so it was added they to the burned, fire. Jews were burning his books. Jews... Some Jews were burning his books. Right. Talk to us about resurrection of the dead, which <laughs> is in the Amidah five yes. times. What did the Rambam do with resurrection of the dead, which is a central feature of Jewish prayer, and in general, the soul and the afterlife, and all yeah. those mystical things? Well, Rambam thought it's not a healthy fantasy. He thought it was a fantasy. It's not a healthy fantasy. Not only is it a wrong fantasy, it's not going to happen. Sorry. He says this. But he says no resurrection. No, he doesn't say this. Actually, it's a good question. I mean, he was accused of not believing in Tchiyat HaMetim. So he has to write, because there was a good reason. People that read him realized it's impossible. He believes in that. So he has to, so he was accused. And then he, he had to write to try to prove that he believes in that anyway. And it, and it uh, an article called Igeret Chiyatamitim, which is a masterpiece in disguising what he really thinks. And a lot of work, scholarly work, was, 
was done about this. But besides the fact that um, intellectually he thought it was false, also from the point of view of religious psychology, it wasn't healthy. Because Rambam wanted us not to focus on our bodies, but to focus on our minds, to go beyond our bodies. Now, Tchiyatamitim is a fantasy that after you die in your pure intellect now, then what's the next stage? You finally got rid of your body. You're elevated. What's next stage? You're back. You're back trapped in your body. That's not heaven. That's, that's the other. That's, so it's not, it's not a fantasy to develop. You have to be very materialistic, hedonistic, connected to your body. It's kind of fantasy that in your future I'll get my body back. So he thought that was materialistic. It's not spiritual. And the fantasy to cultivate is a fantasy to me to get rid of my body and to develop only spiritually. So he thought it wasn't a healthy... A healthy move. But I'll share with you, there is um, the Kotzker Rebbe, one of the greatest um, Hasidish masters that ever lived, the Rebbe Mikotsk. He once was asked, the Hasidim believe that their masters have powers. And he was asked, why don't you, if you have so much powers, why don't you resurrect the dead? And he said, you know why? It's too easy. <laughs> it's too easy. It's very easy to make dead people alive. But I try to do, I have a harder job. I try to resurrect people that are living. That needs a miracle. Wow. And I would say that that story of the Kotzker, I think, so you ask, is it true? Can he really resurrect the dead? I think he was trying to say something. That our life is about trying to give life to the living right. and not to focus on the dead. Uh, Michal, talk us, I mean, Maimonides is uh, described as an arch intellect, rationalist. Yes. Talk to us about you, Michal Goodman, and your view of rationalism and its limits when it comes to matters of the heart and soul and religion. Well, Rambam writes in one of the chapters in the guide that he knows that he's going to be attacked for being rational. And that's because he says people, and here, I, I, people have a tendency to see if you're rational, you're not emotional, you're not connected. And he writes that people think that there is an intuitive connection between mystery and a religious experience. I had a... Um, and I find that something I shared with you personally, El, the story in Tel Aviv University, where I was teaching a class in Tel Aviv University. This was a few years ago. And in the middle of my class, I was distracted. There was, I lost my line of thought. Then I was distracted again. Then I lost the fact that I was even lost. Then I was distracted again. Eventually, I have no idea what I'm talking about. There's like a half an hour to the class. I have no idea what I'm talking about. And now what lectures do sometimes, they fake that they do know what they're talking about. So I'm just trying to disguise the fact that I have no idea where I am, what I'm talking about. And when it comes to these situations, we start using words, especially the word, di- the word dialectic. It's very, it's dialectic. <laughs> So I was saying there's a dialectic tension here and a Hegelian move and I was being very 
yeah, and I was suffering, and they were suffering, and I didn't know what I was saying, and they had no idea what I was saying. <laughs> and thank God the class ended, and when it ended, I realized I did a horrible job there. I just want to go home. I want no interaction with students. Because Israeli students could actually tell you what they think. So I'm just going to walk to my car as quickly as possible. So I start walking to my car, trying to avoid students. But then there's a stubborn student that says, Dr. Goodman, so I did as if I didn't hear him, and I'm just walking. <laughs> and he's walking after me. So here's a question. What will come first, my car or the student? So I'm just walking quickly. I can't hear anything. I'm walking quickly. I get to my car. I open the door, and then he's there. And he says to me, Dr. Goodman, I want to say something to you. So I say to myself, okay, just let, let him say it, and we'll get it over with. And I said, okay, what do you want to say to me? And he said, this time your lecture was deep. <laughs> it was deep. So I said, thank you very much. I was well prepared. Thank you. Now, I'm driving home, and all the way home, I'm asked, saying to myself, I finally know how to deliver deep lectures. If you speak in a way that no one understands, including yourself, <laughs> it was deep. Now, this is, <laughs> this is a human tendency where if I don't understand something, it must be so deep. Now, this is human temptation that I think Rambam was asking us to overcome this. Nothing is deep if it's irrational. Try, making things rational, making things clear, understanding things doesn't make it less deep, less mysterious, and makes it more interesting. It makes us more, it makes it, making it clear actually makes it more deep. So Rambam, here's a paradox of the guy for the perplexed rabbi. And that is, it's a book that's trying to rob Judaism from its mystery, to prove that God exists, to explain every mitzvah, to interpret the greatest enigmas of the universe, like providence, like the problem of evil, like prophecy, to explain everything. But Rambam thought that by robbing it from its mystery, we're not, we're not some way undermining Judaism. We're elevating it. But he's saying we have to overcome the temptation that calls us, not only if we don't understand it, is it deep? But, the pro but here's the paradox. The book that tries to rob Judaism from its mystery is a mystery. Rambam takes all his content and hides it in a coded book under many layers of disguise. That's where he plans his secrets. So the, so the book that tries to rob Judaism from its mystery right. itself is a mystery. Micha, this book... Uh, came out in Israel several years ago, and something like 50,000 Israelis bought this book. It was a bestseller in Israel. What is it about this book that speaks to the modern Israeli condition, uh, this 12th century yes. medieval Jew writing the secret coded book? Why did it uh, speak to Israelis, and what did it say? Depends which Israeli. In broad strokes, in Israel we have Dati'im and Chilonim, secular Israelis. And... Um, it did different things to different communities, to different people. And a classic remark I got was from Israeli chiloni, from Israeli secular Israelis, 
where they felt, they read the guide for the perplex and they felt like, I mean, they read um, the secrets to the guide for the perplex and they felt like someone is expressing their voice within our tradition. Meaning, they always felt like their intuition was a critique of Judaism. And when they read this book, they realized, hey, maybe my intuition is not a critique of Judaism, but it's a voice within Judaism. And that was an important move. That was very important, I think, for many, to realize that your thoughts are not anti-tradition, but they're a voice within tradition. And it gave room for more people to feel like they're part of the conversation. When it comes to the more religious community, I think something else happened is that they realize that their views of tradition are not the only view, are not the only view within tradition. So I would say um, in Israel, secular Israelis and religious Israelis, they both have to go through a different process. Where religious Israelis, their main challenge, I would say, is to try to open up. And secular Israelis, their challenge is to try to get connected again. And I hope what this book did for Israelis, it helped secular Israelis connect themselves and Orthodox Israelis open themselves. Mm. Wow. Well, Michai asked our congregation if they would share some questions for you. And um, I want to close with a few questions Great. that, that our, our congregants asked. I'll, I'll keep the names of the questioners confidential, but Great. the questions. Okay, question. How would political life in Israel be different if rabbinical leadership was Maimonidean? Yeah, it's a deep question. <laughs> Take that. Yes. Rambam in 351 has the following parable. It says the world is like a city. And in the heart of the city, there is a um, palace. And in the heart of the palace, there is a king. And the closer you are to the king is God. And who's closer to God and who's not? And here's the answer, yes. The people who obey the law, they're in the city. The people who master the law, they're close to the palace. The people who, learn, who try to contemplate big ideas, they enter the palace. This is a very important statement. That's saying that obeying the law and mastering the law gets you close to God, but not close enough. In order to get closer to God, you don't do that using the law. You have to go beyond the law to greater ideas to something else. And why is this important, Rabbi? It's because today there is a different notion. And this is how it looked like today. You get closer to the palace by obeying the law. You get closer to the palace by strictly obeying the law. And you get even closer by being even more strict with the law. Meaning, today, the notion of religious excellence collapsed into halacha. What is a good normative Jew? Obeys halacha. What is an excellent Jew? He's machmir. How do you say? He's strict. He's strict with halacha. Rambam separated religious excellence from just being normative. You're normative by obeying halacha. Excellence is beyond halacha. By the way, this wasn't only Rambam. 
for the Hasidut, for Hasidism, excellence wasn't halacha, was about a mystical connection with God. For Torah Musar, for the Musar movement, for the ethical movement, yeah. ethical movement you could quote um, excellence is through being virtuous and ethical. I think it's a tragedy of Judaism that halacha monopolizes everything, including religious excellence. I would love to see a world, a Jewish world, where halacha is the norm, but where charisma exists, where passion exists, is to go beyond halacha, to be ethical, to having to a, 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 a mystical experience, uh, if you're chassid, to have a philosophical understanding. So if, if the rabbis of Israel would be Maimonidian, I think they'd try to encourage us to go beyond halacha and not to be more strict with halacha. That's religious excellence. Thank you, Micha. Um, how did the Guide for the Perplexed change Judaism, the subtitle of your book? Well, it changed Judaism because from the, but not to the direction that Maimonides expected. Tell Rambam, that this, I got the name from this book from, uh, I remember the story when I was in 11th grade, I was visiting, in a, I think I write this in the book, in a library in the south of Israel. And I guess the librarian was very smart because when I went to Jewish philosophy, so it says like this, there was one shelf of books of Jewish philosophy and it said in the bottom, Ad HaRambam. And these are books that were written until Rambam. Then there was another shelf it says on it, Me HaRambam. These are all the books that were written ever since the Rambam wrote the guide. Which means this librarian had an understanding that, you, that Jewish philosophy changed so much you can't put a book on the same shelf. It's the book that changed Judaism. Now it's changed in the following sense. That Jewish philosophy in Tel Maimonides doesn't quote, doesn't have any sources. It's their own intuitions. From Maimonides, their only way to make a statement is to quote Maimonides. He started a conversation. But something else happened. There was a reaction to Maimonides. Tell Maimonides wrote the Guide for the Perplexed, there wasn't one written book in Kabbalah. I'm not saying that Kabbalah didn't exist. I'm saying they weren't sharing their knowledge. The minute Rambam wrote his rational version of Judaism, Kabbalah started spreading and spreading. So he created not only a rational tradition, he also, in a very deep sense, pushed forward the irrational tradition. And in both of those senses, he changed Judaism. Two last questions for you, Micha. Um, what does Maimonides' guide have to say to non-Jews? There are a lot of non-Jews in the mm-hmm. world. What's the role of the non-Jews in his cosmos? Okay, so halacha is not about communicating with God, but it's about balancing our personality and in that sense making our personality more like God. And he calls a balanced personality that practicing halacha could achieve. This is the path, derich Hashem. He calls that derich Hashem. Becoming more godly. And then he says that the one person that achieved that level of a balanced personality, which is the purpose of halacha, was Abraham, Avraham Avinu. There's only one problem by saying that the, per- that the person that managed to achieve the purpose of halacha was Avraham Avinu. And what's the obvious problem? There was no halacha. Okay, now, according to a Talmudic tradition, 
Abraham did somehow obey the halacha. But Rambam rejected that Talmudic tradition. So his Abraham is a halachic, and he achieved the purpose of halacha. What I derive from here is according to Rambam, the road to human perfection is halacha does not have a monopoly over the the road to human perfection, which means that people that are not halachic could reach that goal. But I think he would say, but if you're a Jew, choose halacha, it makes it a lot easier. So God is bigger than Judaism. God is bigger than religion. God is certainly bigger than halakha. Mm-hmm. Okay. Last, last question here. Um, I'm going to just quote this, and I'm thinking again. I want to come back full circle. I mean, there's so much pain and brokenness in this world. Uh, I want to come back to the pictures of the German wings, yes. family members, to the Nepal family members, Thinking about, I mean, I got an email today from a family whose daughter was in that train that derailed. Thank God she's okay. Thank God she's okay. But uh, as I understand it, about nine people passed away because they were on the wrong train at the wrong time. So much pain. And religion has to speak to that in some way. So I want to I wanna just quote this. From, it came from one of our beloved members here. Um, there's an aspect to Maimonides of icy beauty, of limited appeal, to most people, pure reason is fine if you're a scholar or in the elite. What does the guide have to say to everyone else? Towards the, the guide for the perplexed is a book with three different endings. It's true. You walk through the book, then at the end of volume three, he offers an ending to the book. And then you think you finished the book, there's another chapter. And then he offers another conclusion. Okay, now the book ends, the end. Then there's another chapter. And he offers another ending. Now this was very confusing to scholars. What's the real ending of the guide? One ending is a mystical ending. Where the purpose of life is a mystical experience we have union with the universe. Some scholars say, that's the real Maimonides. Maimonides was truly a mystic. The second was that he speaks about complete devotion to halacha. It's an interesting move. We won't go into it. Some say, that's the real Maimonides. It's about being frum, not mystical, frum, halachic. That's what the whole purpose is about. And then that third ending, he says, if you understand all this philosophy, your real role now is to go back into the world and fight for change and change the world politically. So some say, that's the real last chapter of the guide. So many say, no, this is it. In the end, the purpose is political. It's the philosophy has to translate into action after you deeply understand the world, you have to go out and change it. So who's the real Rambam? The mystic, the halachic, or the political? I think Rambam offers all three endings because he's telling all his readers, choose your ending. For someone, the whole voyage of the guide could end with silence, a mystical with mystical um, passion and union. For another, 
with halacha, and with another, with social action. Choose your ending. When it comes to everything happening in Nepal, Maimonides, I think, would say, what the Torah is asking us is not to make theological sense of what happened in the world. It's asking us to change that world. There is a religious moment in Nepal. It's the calling not to accept reality the way it is. Re- gr- the gr- being a great religious person is not justifying, not explaining what happened. It's creating a world where this can't happen. Or when it happens, it's not as bad. And therefore, the, the last chapter of the guide is Maimonides telling you, yeah, if you really understood this book, you realize that being a religious person is realizing that it's not about God. It's about you. And you can't blame God. You should take responsibility. Thank you. Uh, so I, wanna, I just want to make a couple of announcements here. Um, one is that Micha is going to be in the um, atrium of the 11th Alcimum Community Court signing books, and we're going to have dessert, and everyone's encouraged and invited to stay. That's announcement number one. Number two, Micha is kind enough and sweet enough and thoughtful enough to do an encore presentation. That is, tonight was about the 12th century, Maimonides, but there is a question about Israel today. Many of us have some thoughts about the election. Many of us have some serious concerns about the nature of the coalition. Many of us have some serious concerns about the peace process or lack thereof. Many of us have some serious concerns about Iran. We don't know what to think. We just have a lot of worry going around. And Micha is going to talk to us about Israel today, uh, tomorrow night, in the Gan Chapel from 6.30 to 7.30. And uh, he's going to share some thoughts and then take some questions before to be loaded at 7.30. So if you can make it at the Gantt Chapel tomorrow night, 6.30 to 7.30, you'll get his perspectives on Israel today. And Micha, as always, we want to thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Erev Tov.